We're continuing uh, in our series in the book of uh, Mark, so Mark chapter 2. Several weeks ago, our two boys uh, had the the great privilege of visiting their cousins uh, in Southeast Asia, who are are missionaries there. And on their trip, they had visited a Hindu temple, and just being there, you're surrounded by Hinduism, you're surrounded uh, by spiritism, you're you're surrounded by various religions and religious beliefs and practices and traditions. And all kinds of sacrifices and offerings that they put in their homes and outside of their homes. And my youngest, Levi, asked his nana who, and papa, who had graciously taken them over there with them to go see their cousins that they love. Um, on this trip and after seeing some of these things, uh, Kay was sharing this with me. And after we've had some further questions about it. But basically was asking this question, like, how do we know... If our religion or following Jesus is right or that what these people are doing is right, like them observing these different things and them worshiping their different gods, how do we know who's right and who's wrong? I think that's a profound question, and I'm glad that Nan and Papa got to answer it first. (laughs) It's a pretty difficult question from a nine-year-old who's pondering and wondering, how do we know these things? And ultimately, I think all of us, every human being, ultimately has to come to a conclusion for that in their own heart. Which is the right way? And how do we know that? How do you come to a confession of statement like what we've just sung? How do you, do you really believe that Jesus is the only Son of God? And why does that matter? Well, in the book of Mark, and to Mark... As John Mark writes this wonderful gospel, um, he finds it extremely important. The reason it's so important is I know that Oprah Winfrey's towards the end of her career kind of thing, and we don't see too much of her anymore. Probably my kids have no idea who she is. But she was quoted several years ago, probably a little over a decade now, probably almost two now, um, but she's been quoted along the way and started a new show back in 2015 as well, a series on these things, because I think she was fascinated with religion and fascinated with the things of God. And she would claim to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian. But here is one of her quotes. She said, There are millions of ways to be a human being and many paths to what you call God. Well, I am a Christian, this is her speaking. Well, I am a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. You see, this is a view that's very common in our world, whether you're an agnostic who you're like, we can't know for sure if there's a God or not, and so there may be, but it's unknowable, so it's not that I'm not believing that there is a God, we just don't know, and so I'm going to be agnostic. But most people in our world today are pluralist, or they are at least to some degree religious, they're not sure which is the right way or what is the right path or, or not, and they assume, or they assume that their way is right. This is really formally known as religious pluralism and a belief in many different ways to God. For instance, like Oprah Winfrey is suggesting, is Muslims have it right. Jews have it right with Judaism. Christians, Buddhists, Hindus... All the various religions of the world all have a form that is right, and for them, that will get them to God in their own way, and they'll get to God in their own way. This is the view of many, many people on on the planet. Uh, When it comes to Hinduism, 
like I, I heard, again, the same cousins as they're having these conversations with someone that they're close to. And as they're trying to witness and share the gospel with this person. And they're telling about Jesus. And she's like, that's great. Awesome. Let me just add that to my other worship of all these different various gods. And she had to have a conversation with her and tell her, well, that's not what Jesus says. Um, he claims fidelity. He claims to be there's only one way. And I believe that our passage this morning helps us further see that as Mark is continuing in um, this gospel. And so we've been working through it. We're in chapter 2, starting in verse 18 this morning. But even just going back to the very beginning, if this is your first time, I know for some of you it is your first time. If you go back to the very, very beginning of Mark and look at verse 1, there's a strong statement that Mark gives. He says this, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And in chapter 1, we begin to see who Jesus is and who he claimed to be and who he was, who he, why he came and what he was about. We see this throughout chapter 1. We see that he's the Christ, the Messiah. Because again, when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a title that the Jews were looking for as the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised Savior who would free them from their captivity. That would break every chain, some of the lines that we were singing. Those kind of concepts are in their mind as they're anticipating the Messiah. And so here Mark's claiming that Jesus is this promised one. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, Jesus Christ. But also in that verse, he says, the Son of God. Mark is presenting that he is more than just an ordinary person who's a great teacher of the law. He's more than just a good person. He is, in fact, God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. And so Mark is telling us this is incredibly good news. And why is it good news? That's what Mark's writing his gospel for. We see him as a miracle worker. He, deal, he heals disease, has authority to cast out sins. And recently, uh, we saw that he has the authority to forgive sins. Now, we come to our third of five. We're in the middle of a study on different controversies that Jesus faced that began in chapter 2, verse 1, and go all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. And so we're looking at our third controversy this morning. And so we come to our passage this morning in in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Let's read it um, together. You don't have to read it out loud. I'll read it um, here. But I want you to follow along. He says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. 
Now, I know maybe if you just first time, probably for many of you, this is the first time you're reading this. Uh, I, I've been studying it for a while. So, um, But when you just read something like this, you might just kind of pass over it. It's like, all right, cool. He talks about fasting. You know, it's like, all right, why doesn't Jesus fast? All these people fast. I'm hearing Pharisees. I'm hearing fasting. I'm hearing about a, a wedding, but I'm also hearing about wine and wineskins. What does all of this mean? And why are these people asking? And I started thinking about this this week. I'm like, I feel like I've done maybe a little bit of a... Um, uh, uh, injustice to you and not explaining specifically who the Pharisees are. Who is this crowd that's asking all these questions and kind of bringing about this, these controversies and trying to get Jesus to trip up, to, to catch him in a fault and to try to persecute him and remove him from the scene? Well, who are these Pharisees? So usually when, when someone uses this term today, I catch myself using it as well, they're talking about legalism. And hypocrisy. Uh, that's kind of the term that we use today. I mean, you might not be saying like no one's, hopefully no one's ever called you a Pharisee. That would be unfortunate. But, um, but you might have been called that before. Um, but, if, but the point being is a Pharisee, in our mindset, in our eyes, kind of through the lens of Scripture a little bit, we kind of look at that as a, a phrase of a derogatory term or a, a, a statement of saying that, man, that person's a hypocrite. Or they're legalistic. They're bound to a bunch of legalistic rules and regulations, and rituals, and different things. But you have to see, and I think ultimately our view, our view of the Pharisee is guided by Jesus' view of them, and how he called them out over and over again throughout the Gospels. But to the average person of that day, the Pharisees actually were viewed very highly. They would have been looked up to as like super religious. You know, in the time of Jesus, they were held in these kind of high views because of their sincere devotion to the law. They were very sincere in their devotion. They wanted to maintain a life of devotion and holiness to God. So, for example, if any of you, you know, if any of you have finished Leviticus yet, I know I saw this week a pretty funny uh, meme about a guy. It was like this old firebird, like a really old firebird. It looked like it was barely running, but it's like it was pumping. It was pumping. This guy's pulling out of the the uh, the parking lot, and he's kind of gunning it. It's real loud. And then on the screen, it was like it was like Genesis chapter one to twenty, and then and it kept going, kept going, and he's about to pull out. And into the road. He's almost through Exodus in this story. And then he goes and he guns it and he goes and then all of a sudden he loses control and he gets thrown out of the car and it said Leviticus. <laughs> and it's like most people, it's like they get to Leviticus and they just can't finish their Bible reading. But in the book of Leviticus, what we see is really a remarkableness of who God is and his holiness and his righteousness and his high standard. And so the Pharisees, in a gen genuine desire for holiness, they had taken the law of God and they had added more laws to protect them from breaking the law of God. Example, the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath had certain regulations that God had established that you're not to do and you are to do for the Sabbath. Well, here's what the, the Pharisees had done. They had created about 39 different things that you needed to do in order to keep you from breaking God's law. And what happened naturally over time is those laws became as if they were the law of God. And the Pharisees would, hold, would look down on others who would not keep them, and they would condemn others who would not keep their laws. These were um, the, the laws of the elders. This was the tradition of the elders that you hear about, as Jesus even refers to. You see, these are man-made laws. And their initial goal was not to be legalistic, but rather to please God through perfect obedience. But it quickly became outward obedience and adherence to the law when actually their hearts were far from him. 
And so now that we get another question that we come up to in this passage is, what is fasting? What is, when they're coming up with this question of, why does John's disciples, and John's disciples, John the Baptist, if you remember, he was kind of the forerunner to Christ. He's, he's preparing the people of God to receive the Messiah. And so he's calling them to repentance. And it had a baptism of repentance out in the wilderness. And he's calling the people to prepare their hearts. And so they're fasting and they're praying and they're, they're seeking repentance to, to have their hearts receive Christ. And the Pharisees had their own fasts. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays as well. But actually, in the Old Testament, the only day of the year that the people were called to actually fast, that they were commanded to fast, was the Day of Atonement. It was one day a year where the high priest would come and offer the sin, would offer a sacrifice, and the scapegoat would be let out. I was just reading this earlier this month in Leviticus, I think in Leviticus 16 and 17. And as you read that story, you see the sincerity and the seriousness of sin. And so this was a day to humble yourselves, this one time a year to to not eat and to reflect and think upon the the weight of your sin and to cry out to God. And then the high priest would go in and would offer this sacrifice for the sin and and to, to make atonement for the people, a payment for sin for the people of Israel. This is the only one, though, that was commanded that the people were to do. And yet now we fast forward, and, and in some of the prophets we see calls of fasting and, and mourning and praying and, and seeking the Lord for favor or see, seeking repentance through fasting, but none of those were required. But yet here the Pharisees have put on themselves these heavy burdens and these heavy fasts, and now they're expecting and they're looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, why don't you and your disciples fast like us? And others, why are you at the party with the sinners and the tax collectors having a great time? And while here we're religiously devoted to God and the things of God. You see, they're really asking a question of they're really wanting to know if you are so spiritual and all. Jesus, if you're really so spiritual, why aren't you and your disciples living up to the high spiritual standards that we are? Why aren't you super spiritual? Why are you eating and feasting and celebrating and all of these things while we're fasting? Well, he responds. Look at verse um, chapter Mark chapter 2, verse 19. They ask this question, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees feast, but your disciples do not fast? He says this in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I know this might be a little bit confusing, but there's there's so much here that I think can help us. One is Jesus is often, when he's referred to, there's different ways that he is referenced uh, in Scripture. He's different names of God or, or things that attributes of God, and so we put a name to it. One of the names of God, one of the descriptions of God is that He is this husband that is coming for his bride. And he's referred to as a wedding or a feast or a celebration. And so Jesus is saying, since I am here, people should be celebrating, not fasting. Like, the Messiah has come. I'm present. I'm with you. I'm among you. I dwell with you. You shouldn't be fasting. I mean, I don't know when the last time you've been to a wedding. Um, 
I know some of you, some of the men in this room probably try to avoid them as much as possible. And your wife's like, no, you're coming. Dress up. Let's go. Let's go to this, you know. And so you might be like kind of dreading the ceremony. But at least if you're, if you're a decent human being, you're like, at least there'll be good food, right? Like you're, you're pretty pumped about the food, some cake, you know, different things. The party that kind of happens afterwards. But, I mean, can you imagine showing up and the, and the guests are all coming, but all the guests come and they're like, they have all this nice platter of food and all this, this delicacies out there. And then, but everyone's like, but actually what we're going to do today is we're going to fast at this wedding. We're just going to sit and we're going to ponder and we're going to think and we're going we're to just ponder the weight of our sin and we're just going to pause in this moment and we're just going to kind of moan and, and, and grumble and look downtrodden and all these things at a wedding. No, like... Have you ever noticed this? I love, I remember when I, whether it's when I'm officiating weddings or when I was like the best man or at my own wedding, I wasn't really paying attention to other people except my bride, of course. But one of the joys of my life is watching all the people, like it's one of the joys in life is to watch all the people when the bride comes in and, and starts to walk down the aisle. What does everyone do? They can't, tears come down, but a lot of smiling. No, you can't help but smile. Or you watch when the couple's in front of each other. They're holding hands. And they're, they, you can't tell what they're saying, but it looks like they're saying nice, sweet things and all this stuff. And what are you doing in your facial expression? You're smiling. Some of you are smiling me just talking about it, right? Like, like there's joy here. Like, why in the world would someone come and be like, Let, we, need to, we need to take the weight of this moment and, and mourn the, the wed of this couple, <laughs> No, you come and you celebrate. It's a feast. In the Jewish culture, this was a week-long adventure. It was a, a celebration. It was a joy. It was a time to celebrate, not to mourn. And this reminds me of something that I think that you can see in so many churches in, in the lives of people who profess to be followers of Jesus. And this is really my first main point for this morning. I really only have two main points this morning. One is this, is followers of Jesus, Jesus should be characterized by joy. Like this should be the mark of believers. Joy. Why is there an absence of joy in so many people who who claim to be followers of Jesus? You look at their life and they just seem angry and upset, bitter, frustrated by the trials of life. There seems to be no joy, but here we see, first of all, is like there should be followers of Jesus should be characterized. There should be a mark of every believer is that they're full of joy. You see, a relationship with Jesus is not a boring and solemn lifestyle. No, it should be marked by joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, as Scripture tells us. We're to be marked by joy. It's a time of celebrating. And you'd say, well, why is this such an important celebration? Why is this a celebrating? Because of this passage. Because I want you to see it again. Look at verse 19 again. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Like, they're in their presence. We're not going to fast. We're going to celebrate. But again, picture this with Jesus. Here Jesus is come. He's describing himself as the bridegroom. He's present. He's among his people. And, and some were celebrating. Others were trying to catch him in a fault and trying to criticize his teaching and his love and his compassion to other people. And he's saying, you can't fast while the Son of God and the Son of Man is among you. Why is this a big deal? Because it's not just for the guests. The Bible tells us that He comes for His bride. 
He is the bridegroom and his followers are the bride of Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, the Bible pictures the people of God, God's chosen people as the bride of God. And the, and the book of Hosea really portrays this, that God's people were rebellious people. I would encourage you to read the book of Hosea. Like, I know some of the um, minor prophets and other of the prophets can be a little confusing. This one is pretty plain in the first several chapters. And what we see is a prophet who is called to go and, and marry and take to be his bride, a prostitute. A woman of whoredom, as it's described as well in other translations. This prophet is to go and take someone who has given herself to a lifestyle, doesn't even care about Hosea. He takes her in, and they have children together, and God uses that as a story and telling the names of his children that these are not my people. It's one of the names of the kids. You're like, man, I know we're going pretty far with the naming of our kids lately, but like, not my people is not one on the list of top hundred uh, names for boys or girls. But what Hosea is a picture is he doesn't just get to be a prophet and tell people. He gets to be a living example for the people. And Hosea is called to go and marry this prostitute and to go take her in. And what does that prostitute do? Because of his generosity and his love, what does that prostitute, Gomer is her name, another crazy name that's not being on the top 100 either for girls' names. What does Gomer do? What What does Gomer do? She leaves him and goes right back to that lifestyle of prostitution. Unfaithful. Ungrateful. And you know what God was using this story of Hosea to describe? He was describing it of his own people who were unfaithful, who were undeserving. And you know what he called Hosea to go back to? He said, I want you to go back again and marry someone who is loved by another. See, that's a picture of our unfaithfulness to a holy, living, loving God. He comes for a bride who is unfaithful. He comes in such a way to bring and restore and to bring hope and healing to our brokenness. This Jesus comes and he comes not after we've cleaned ourselves up, after we've left the brothel, after we've left our whoredom to the things of God, after we've committed affair after affair against the holy God with our unrighteous living. God comes after us. This is prophesied in Isaiah. I want you to look at it. Isaiah 54. In Isaiah, it's sort of in the Bible, in the middle of your Bible, it looks like this maybe. <laughs> I don't know if that helps. Um, but Isaiah 54, chapter 5. This is the prophecy of God. So you have Hosea as this picture of God's people who are whoring against him and God telling him, this is the unfaithfulness of you, but I'm a God who comes after the unfaithful. And listen to what his, this prophecy is from Isaiah 54. Starting in verse 5, it says this, For your maker, (laughs) your maker, the creator and sustainer of all things, God himself, your maker, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. It's a good name. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. 
You see, this is a picture of God himself as a husband coming for his unfaithful bride. He says, I've, I've left you to yourselves for a time. Your unfaithfulness, your unworthiness, it's all over the earth. None of, us, none of us deserve it. And yet here he comes. Is this cause to mourn? No. Jesus has come. This is to bring joy and, and, and bring uh, joy and laughter and gratitude to the living God that he would come in my unfaithfulness and my unworthiness. While I was an enemy of God, he would send his son to die in my place. You see, this is the picture of the gospel. And so this should mark every follower of Jesus. It's a life full of joy. Because back in our passage in Mark chapter 2, he says this. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. He's here. He's come. But then notice what he says. He's he's giving us a little hint to his future. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. The Greek reads that as forcefully taken. He's taken away. It's the picture of him being taken to the cross. He's going to be betrayed by man. Judas is going to kiss him on the cheek and give him over to the Roman government. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the religious leaders and the elite are going to crucify him and put him on a cross. He's going to be taken away. And what does he say here? He says, and then there will be a time of mourning. Notice what he says. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. You see, we celebrate because Christ has come, but we also, with great anticipation, we seek to please Him. We seek to, we do fast. There are times of fasting. It's not mandated in Scripture. It's not, we're not told we have to do this. There's not a day of atonement. Jesus was the final and full atonement for the sins of the world. This should bring celebration. But now we wait in anticipation to the great feast of the Lamb, where we gather as all the saints as we were singing earlier, as his, as his, at his final coming, as he comes in second coming, and he brings the bride of Christ to be with him forevermore, we gather around the table. It's a picture of celebration, of feasting and eating, and it's a, a joyous celebration, and we long for that day again. We wait with great anticipation. But now, the mark of a believer should be one of gratitude and joy because the bride has come for his, or the, the, the husband has come for his unfaithful bride, and that is us, and that is good news. Secondly, what we see, and we're going to see this as we finish out this passage this morning, is Jesus and works-based religion are totally incompatible. You see, the works-based religion of the Pharisees and Jesus, they don't mix. He comes to fulfill the law. He doesn't come to add to the law, to bring a, a new angle to the law. He comes to in fulfillment of the law. The old covenant is coming to an end. The new covenant in my name, as he said at the Last Supper, as we observe communion together. You know, as he does this in his name, it comes as a new covenant in his blood. And so Jesus and works-based religion are totally incompatible. Look what he says. He gives two illustrations, two parables to explain it. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. And then he says this in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear is made. Now, I don't know about you, like I don't know how much you do laundry or not 
like those kind of things, like I, I do it every once in a while, I'm not the greatest at it or something. I mean, I'm fine, I could throw it in. It's the folding that's always the difficulty, you know, the folding and then getting it to your dresser is always the hard part, uh, it seems. Um, I'm great at getting it to the washer. Uh, like, we'll get it to the washer, someone else can finish the process, right? And so, but w- when you think about it, when you get new clothes, right, you know, you're like, you're trying, you're like, all right, I fit in these pretty well. And then you put them in the washer and all of a sudden you're like, what happened? Did I gain weight or something? Like all of a sudden the clothes are a little bit tighter because new clothing, oftentimes, you know, nowadays we like holes in them and all the different things and we don't want patches, we want holes and all those things. But um, when it comes to new fabric, right, it's, uh, it's, it's not been shrunk yet. It hasn't been weathered. I mean, even if you did an illustration of a sail and a sail on a boat, it's been hit with rain, it's been hit with weather and all this stuff. And then you get a tear in that sail and you take some new fabric and you put that fabric on it. What's going to happen as soon as it gets out in the weather again? It's going to begin that that new sheet that you put on there is going to begin to shrink and it's going to tear and it's actually going to make a bigger hole in it. This is what he's describing with cloth and clothing is like you don't take a new cloth a new a new cloth and put it on an old torn beat up pair of pants or clothing because what's going to happen it's going to shrink and it's going to tear it away. He's given an illustration. And he's giving two illustrations and both point to Jesus and works-based religion are totally incompatible. And what do I mean by that? What what do I mean for the Pharisees and why is he saying this to the Pharisees? You see, the Pharisees, remember their whole fasting question. They were fasting Mondays and Thursdays, and they were fasting at other times and different meals and different seasons and all these different rituals and feasts. They would fast at those as well. And they were putting this heavy burden on the people. And their religion and their practice of all these things were what Jesus is saying. The new has come, and it doesn't blend. It doesn't mix. You can't mix your man-made religion and put it together with Jesus. Jesus, the new, is going to mess up that old. It's going to tear it out. It isn't going to fit. It isn't going to work because it doesn't fit. So he gives another illustration. He says this. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Why give this story again in this culture, especially at a a wedding? They're going to have wine at this wedding. You see this at the Feast of Canaan. The very first miracle that we see of Jesus recorded in Scripture is his his, um, turning water into wine at a wedding, at wedding at Cana. But what... What is this? What they would do is they would take fresh, good goat skin as they have used this goat skin and they would put it almost like picture a canteen with goat skin as being formed. And so a goat skin would be the container like a canteen that holds the wine. But what would happen is if you put new wine in old wineskins, those old wineskins have become brittle and hard after wear and tear and over time and just being weathered. And so if you put new wine in that, when you close it up, that wine is, it ferments and begins to expand. And what's going to happen to those brittle old wineskins? They're going to burst. They're not going to hold the wine. You need new wineskins for the new wine. It can't hold old, old wineskin, or old, old goatskin isn't going to hold new wine. He's given two illustrations that maybe if you just read it, you just would miss this. But his point is very, very clear is that Jesus and works-based religion are totally incompatible. Here's what I mean, because this is, this is a struggle, I would say, for many people, even today. This isn't just for the Pharisees. This is for the religious people of our day. You see, salvation is not patching up your life. 
It's not patching up patchwork. Following Jesus isn't an add-on to your lifestyle. Following Jesus, and you're like, all right, I'm going to start following Jesus. I'm going to just add him to my life. No, that's not what Jesus is after. He says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself daily. Take up your cross and follow me. See, Jesus was calling for radical transformation, but this happens from a radically new life. It comes from a transformed heart. It comes with a new heart. It comes with a new birth, a description that in John chapter 3 with, um, uh, with Lazarus, as, he, as he's asking these questions, or Nicodemus, as Nicodemus is asking these questions, how can I be saved? And Jesus describes how, how he's got to be reborn. And he's like, how in the world am I supposed to get back in my mother's womb? I can't do that. I mean, like, you're like, man, have you not thought a little bit ahead? Of course that's not what he means. But what he means is there's a transformation. It's a new heart. You can't just take an old heart and add Jesus to it. You need a transformed heart. You need a a new heart. Salvation isn't patching yourself up. You don't just add Jesus and be better and think good thoughts and have a good lifestyle and add some morals to your life and, and see if that will make you pleasing to the Lord. No, the Pharisees and all of their religious practices were missing this. They thought by their fasting and their devotion and adding all these laws that that would make them right with God and it wasn't working because it can't work. You cannot make yourself right with God. You need God to make you right with himself. You need his transforming power in and through your life. You need his spirit, a new spirit, I give you. It says, Galatians gives us this great description of that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It is an Old goes away and new comes. It's not added on your religious practices. It's a whole new you. It is a whole new robe of righteousness that is not your own. See, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 tells us, Jesus became sin who knew no sin. The one who was perfect, sinless, the one we're looking at in the book of Mark, Jesus, the the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this gospel that Mark is telling us about. You see, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He takes on sin. He clothes himself with the sin of the world. He who who knew no sin became sin. So why? How? What can happen through this? 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us. Says he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it's this great exchange. It doesn't make absolutely any sense. He gets our sin. We give him our sin. We receive his righteousness. He clothes us in his righteousness. Think of it as you look at your bank account later today and you see you are in negative upon negative. You're looking and you see credit card debt, credit card debt. You see all this debt and it's like it's gotten bad. You lost the house and you're just seeing all of this debt. It's completely, fully inundated in debt with no hope of getting out. You're like, there's no way. We don't make enough. There's no way to. You see that you look at this and you look at your situation and you are completely in debt. This is all you have to offer. 
And Jesus, as the husband, comes and he lives the life that you, didn't, that you should have lived. And he dies the death that you should have died. And by faith, when you put your faith in him, it's like when you take two bank accounts and you were in the negative, but your husband or your wife or your spouse was in the positive. All of a sudden now, the two of you are joined together. And you're like, thanks be to God that you had some money, because I didn't. This is the picture. It's the picture of complete debt. And here he comes to purchase his bride. To ta- he pays the bride price for us, and he takes us as his own, the unfaithful, the unwilling to do what's right, the one who are opposed to the things of God, the ones who are whoring against him, as Hosea describes. Here Jesus comes like we see in Isaiah 54, and he comes to pay the price for our sin, to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died. And here's what happens. The great exchange is, all of a sudden, he takes upon himself the sin, and he clothes us, he robes us with his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see sinful Eric. He doesn't see all my past failures. He doesn't see all of my sin. He doesn't see the brokenness. What he sees is he gives a new heart. It's a transformed heart because it comes only through Jesus. And what does he see? He sees Jesus' righteousness in my place. See, this is the gospel. And Jesus, in all your works, in all your effort, in all your things, They are incompatible. You can't mix religion and and, and legalism and all these things and mix those with Jesus. Jesus is saying, you can't handle it. When I come in, I change everything. It's an explosive. It's an ever-expanding, like the wine in the wineskin. It's expanding, and it's overflowing so much that it's going to burst if your heart isn't changed. You need a new heart. And my, 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 my concern and my prayer is that some of you, maybe you need that new heart. You've never really put your trust in Christ alone for salvation. You've put your hope in maybe your man-made works. Like, I'm here on Sunday. I pray some. I read my Bible every once in a while. I'm doing these things. And those things, if you're like the Pharisees, they'll never earn you favor with God because works can't earn favor with God. You see, works come from a heart transformed by the gospel. And so now you do these things in light of who God is and who you are and your response and adoration and glory and worship of Him. It comes from a heart and you work not for righteousness, but you work because of His righteousness for you. This is the gospel. This is Mark's gospel. The gospel of the Pharisees is one of works that's totally incompatible. And Jesus says, listen, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. Listen, you try to put me onto your man-made religion, it'll just burst. It isn't going to work. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, but the, and the wine is destroyed, and so, are the wines, and, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You see, you need a new heart, only a new heart. Changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Changed by our Lord and Savior. Given freely as a gift. Received by faith. is the only one that can handle it. You can't add religion. You can't patch up your life. This won't work. Jesus and works-based religion are totally incompatible. My prayer is that we would not be about works to earn God's favor. That our, our lives would be marked by joy. That our services would be filled with joy and thanksgiving for this God who's come for us as such unfaithful people. And that would move us to devotion and great love for God 
and his word and living a lifestyle set apart and wholly devoted to him, but not, never, after, never before a response in faith. Never to earn God's favor, because you can't. You'll always be indebted. By trying, you'll just be more in debt. This is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus has paid the price and has come for his bride. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much. Thank you for your, for your son. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our atonement. Thank you for that it's not based on my devotion to law because I would be a failure every time. All of us would because all of us fall short. Our works are like filthy rags. Even our righteousness is. So Father, like we looked at last week, may we not be self-righteous because that blinds us to grace. May we see the grace of Jesus and his coming to transform and to heal our brokenness, to take us as an unfaithful, unholy people and to you clean us up with your righteousness, not my righteousness. Father, may we see these truths this morning that we ought to celebrate because of Christ. We should bring celebration. Can't help but think of the different stories of the three, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, and each of those, and each of those, when the lost are found, the Bible tells us that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's joy in heaven. I can't imagine what joy in heaven must look like when a celebration, it's like a standing ovation. Is it yelling? Is it screaming? Is it tears of joy? Is it just and overwhelming is their music. I don't, I don't know what those things look like, God, but joy, joy is in your presence. And joy should be the mark of our hearts. And God, forgive us for our not being a light to this world by our sadness. God, forgive us of our apathy. Forgive us of not appreciating your goodness and your grace to us. God, help us. We need your help. We need your grace to transform our hearts. God, take our hearts of stone and give us a brand new heart like we see in the Old Testament prophets. Make us whole. Make us new. Transform us through the power of your shed blood on a cross. God, I thank you, though. We can also have joy because... You're not just dead on a cross like you're taken away as we see in this passage. You were taken away. Three days later, you rose from the grave. You are alive forevermore and this should cause us to celebrate every day of our life and especially on Sundays because you are alive and that gives us incredible hope. A hope of a future presence and a future joy and a future celebration at the table with people of all walks in life from history past to history future as the gathered saints celebrate the Lamb of God who was slain. God, may we long for this day. May we anticipate it with joy. May it lead us to a, a, a humble service, a, a, a view of people around us of their need of the gospel. God, may we not become apathetic. May we be moved devotion. 
So God, we thank you again this morning. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. He is our only hope. And he's not just a hope past because of something he's done. It's a living hope. You're alive and well forevermore. And that gives us great hope for our future as well as we put our faith in you. Help us, God, in all these things. Help us to adore you and love you. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.